0: So perhaps now after hearing that passage read, you'll understand why I asked Katie to go into labor early this past week. And in my defense, I asked her early in the week, if you're going to go into labor in the next week, will you go ahead and do it now so that I don't get far into this work? And so Friday, I said, it's too late. You need to wait till Monday. Of course, we're. In fact, it sounds like Joy and Leonard's daughter actually got that prayer instead, and she went into labor, and they have a beautiful granddaughter now. So congratulations to them. Now, of course, we are not listening to this passage at random, are we? We've been walking through this section of Mark's gospel known as the way, the way of the cross. And Jesus is nearly there to Jerusalem where he will face the cross. But along the way, he's been showing and teaching in various ways that the world is backwards, that there's been this fatal tear in the fabric of the world and in our humanity, all of us. And he said that for us to get back on track, for us to become truly human again, we must follow him on the way of the cross, the way of self-denial and of service to him as our Lord. And so now, in this passage that we've just read, we come to the place where Jesus applies the way of the cross to the most intimate spheres of our life. Marriage. Family. And if we had time to go on in Mark chapter 10 next week, money. That's what Mark chapter 10 is all about. Applying the way of the cross to the most intimate areas of our life. Marriage, family, and money. These are the places where the struggle to live out God's design for human love, the taking up of one's cross, has its most concrete application. So as hard as some of these things will be, because they are difficult. Listen, even Jesus' disciples are surprised at where he goes with this. But when we walk with Jesus in these areas, especially, we have the greatest possibility of finding the life God promises and desires for us. It's when we're willing to go even into these intimate areas with Jesus that we're on the cusp of finding true life, kingdom life. Now, it's also good to know as we jump in that as awkward as this issue may be for us, and it. It is awkward for us. Some of us, this, this is very real. It was at least as awkward for Jesus and even dangerous, this situation. It was one of life and death for Jesus. See, Jesus is in the territory where John the Baptist preached. This is where he is when this situation happens. John the Baptist was his forerunner who announced that people should repent because God was breaking into the world in this new way. But John was eventually arrested and even killed. Does anyone remember exactly why John was arrested? Because John said publicly that the local king's divorce and remarriage wasn't legitimate. So the local king arrested him. And then that local king's wife, who had divorced that king's brother to marry him, had John killed. So like so many issues in our day, in Jesus's day, there were conservative and liberal views on divorce. So here's Jesus in that same territory being asked about divorce. And if he gives the conservative answer, he will essentially be saying to that king that his divorce was illegitimate, that his new marriage is illegitimate. And the Pharisees will perhaps get exactly what they want. Jesus will be dealt with similar to John the Baptist. and they assume they'll be rid of them for good. The situation is a trap for Jesus. He cannot win. Now I, I want to start in what might seem like an odd place, Genesis chapter one. So in Genesis chapter one, we have the creation story where, where over this period of six days God forms all the natural world, The heavens, the earth, the sea, and dry land, all vegetation, all animal and marine life, and on the final day, humanity. And after the creation of each day, we're told that God looked on his creation and saw that it was... This is the case for each day, except one. Does anyone know which day... God does not declare it was good. Ready? Ms. Lil has a guess. What's it? Man? Well, no, that was, no, he he does say man was good. He does. It's a different day. Anybody want to guess a day? Day two. It's day two, and this is the day on which God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, the fact that this phrase, it was good, is there every single day except day two. And the fact that when we read the Bible closely for a long time, we realize that the Bible, the biblical authors are not flippant about these sorts of things. They don't make mistakes like this. They're actually careful artists. So when we see this, we realize this absence can't be an accident. Why does God not call this good this absence is what one friend has called a pregnant silence a silence that gives birth to the entire trajectory of the bible and actually all of history because in the creation story heaven and earth are separated there are the heavens above and the earth beneath but they are kept separate But the rest of the Bible tells us about how heaven and earth are being made one. This absence sets up the tension at the center of the Lord's prayer, which we pray every service. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth no longer separate, but one. So at the end of history, for which we have this vision in the book of Revelation that Jan read to us, heaven comes down to earth. The creation that was good in Genesis by Revelation, it's somehow even better, more glorious. So this is just a sidebar. As we see this, there's this escalation between Genesis 1 and the creation being good and Revelation where it's even better. We should see that even from the beginning, God had no intention that his creation was complete and a finished product. There was an intended progress and direction for history that God had from the beginning. So throughout Genesis chapter 1, God sets up this series of complementary pairs. This is very important. Pairs that are initially separated, but he will eventually join together. So think about these pairs, light and darkness, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. But in Revelation chapter 21, the heavens come down to earth. Darkness is cast out by the light of God's presence. And the sea is no more. There's no sea and dry land. It's just heaven and earth together. This is all part of what God is doing in the good news of Jesus and in the defeat of sin. He takes these complementary pairs and brings them together in Christ. This is the Lord's Prayer fully and finally answered. God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what does all of this have to do with the passage we're in about marriage and divorce? It has absolutely everything to do with it. Because when Jesus speaks about marriage and divorce, he takes us back here to this vision of creation. From the beginning of creation, he says, God created them male and female. You see, man and woman are the crown of God's creation. Man and woman are the ultimate complementary pair in the process of creation. And they represent what God intends to do with everything that he's made. When God joins a man and a woman in marriage, he makes an entirely new thing, a one flesh union. And this is the same vision for the coming together of heaven and earth, to become one. So marriage, this union of a man and woman in the most physically and emotionally intimate way possible, reflects to the world the image and intent of God. This is the purpose of marriage. Now, let me draw this out just a little bit more and show this, the centrality to the Bible of this vision. Think with me for a minute about the New Testament letter of Ephesians. You, you don't have to turn there. I'm happy to provide these notes later if you want to fact check me. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 3 through 10, we get this kind of 30,000-foot vision of history and what God intends for all of creation. It's summed up in verse 10 of Ephesians 1. According to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. There it is again the overlapping of heaven and earth, heaven and earth being made one in Christ. Again, complementary pairs, which are divided in Genesis 1, but are brought together in Christ. But the complementary pairs have become even more hostile and divided to one another because of sin. So in chapter 2 of Ephesians, humans have been divided along ethnic lines, Jew versus Gentile. Gentile represents everything that is not Jewish. But God breaks down the wall of separation through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God makes one new humanity. All people. Still, the greatest division is the division between God himself and humanity. Because he's the creator and we're the creature. And even more so, because his creatures have rebelled against him turned away from him. So then in Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of marriage. He quotes the same passage Jesus does in Mark, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But Paul goes on further. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, complementary pairs. God and his image bearers, meant to be together, but divided because of sin, and yet made one in Christ. The church is Christ's bride, joined with him and made one flesh with him. This is what marriage is about. What we're seeing here is that God's design for marriage comes out in the Bible, not only in straightforward commands. That's not the only place we can look to in the Bible to learn about marriage. Marriage is actually woven into the very fabric of the biblical story. Man and woman committed to each other, united together in intimate love for life, represent what God intends to do with the entire creation. Marriage. And the marriages represented here are a sign and sacrament of God's intent for us and for our world to be united with God in love. Now, truth be told, it is hard for some of us to believe this. It's hard for some of us to believe that your marriage or anyone else's marriage could ever live up to this kind of glory. But what I'm asking you to do this morning, is to suspend your disbelief and to believe it. To believe that this is what God says about marriage. This is God's word, and this is the true story of the world. Jesus says this is true, that since the beginning of creation, this design, this vision for marriage has not changed. So I'm asking you to believe God's word. And for what it's worth, Despite all that's happening and changing in our world, I think there's an ongoing primal desire for marriage to be intimately united with another human being. And I believe this is a testimony to the reality that this is true, that the Bible's vision for marriage is true for the whole world. Now, let me ask this question as we move on. Is this Possible Is it possible that the marriages among us, and only for the sake of clarity, I'm also including second marriages, that these marriages can live up to this calling? Now, if you don't think it's been difficult yet, it's about to get difficult. Now, I want you to turn to the person beside you and say, we can do this with God's help. Turn to the person beside you. All right. So the Pharisees, how many people do you have beside you? How many? So the Pharisees asked Jesus his thoughts on divorce, and he asked them, what did Moses tell you? They say, Moses, and I think this is a key word allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send away his wife. Now, they're drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 24, which, believe it or not, was a way of mitigating against the effects of divorce on women. Women could just be allowed to flounder while their husbands pursued whatever they want. And so Moses says, give the woman a certificate of divorce so that she is free and that she may go marry another and be protected in a culture where women were often extremely vulnerable. Now Jesus's response here is the crux of the argument. But, there it comes. Let's wait for the crux of the argument. Let's just wait. You should just sing. I hear that train a coming one Sunday when we're going through this. Here's how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. It is because of your hardness of heart. He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is saying that the reason for divorce, for the tearing apart of this one flesh union that God has made, is because our hearts are hard. Now, I realize on one level that divorce is much more complicated than this, and I'm not suggesting there aren't legitimate reasons for Divorce in some cases. But Jesus is telling us that the reason for divorce boils down to this the hardness of heart in at least one person, and often two. However, however, Jesus also knows that in himself, God is renewing all things, including the hearts of those who follow him. So Jesus is claiming that with the arrival of God's kingdom, God's original intentions can now be fulfilled. This is why while the Pharisees go to Deuteronomy, Jesus says, no, you have to go back further than that. And he goes to the creational intent. Jesus is essentially saying that those divorce allowances were a stopgap measure, but now You can handle what I've really made you for. So those of you who follow Jesus, he has given you a new heart, a new capacity to carry out God's designs, his intentions. So instead of looking for an escape clause for marriage, a way out, which is what the Pharisees are doing, Jesus calls on all of us to look in on the hardness of our own hearts to repent of our own responsibility and go back to what God intends for our marriage, that it would reflect imperfectly as it may be what God is doing in the world. He is joining heaven and earth. Now, Jesus also reminds us of what God said in the beginning, what God has joined together. Do not let man separate. So in other words, The union of a husband and wife isn't a mere human convention, but it's a bond made by God himself. No human being is authorized to dissolve that bond once it's been made. So we're not free to treat courts like a stamp of approval on our sin. You're not free to do that. So let me ask this question again. Is it possible for our marriages to live up to the high calling of reflecting God's image and intent into the world? And the answer is yes. How? How? Through ongoing repentance. Receiving the new heart that Jesus offers and living with a spirit of repentance in our marriages. You know what's amazing about couples who have been married 50, 60, 70 years? know they've been through it and yet they've made it that's what's amazing that their hearts are so soft that they've been able to do it all those years sin after sin against each other yet they've done it forgiveness after forgiveness and they've done it prayer after prayer of desperation and they've done it this is not magic that's not what Jesus is saying But there are countless marriages that have weathered this, and through God's love, through prayer, and through hard work, they've done it. The calling that Jesus is giving to us is one of faithfulness to continue this kind of labor of love. How many of us, many of us in different seasons of our lives and our marriages are going to need all sorts of resources to be able to live out this calling that Jesus places on us. We're going to need the resources of the church. We're going to need the resources of professional counselors. We're going to need the resources of friends who will weep with us and pray with us, of those older couples who can tell us, this is how we did it. Time after time in our marriages, we're going to need this. It's not as if we get better and then we're set for the rest of the time. It's seasonal. It's cycles question is, will we do the hard work? Whatever it demands to make our marriages work, Jesus is telling us it will be worth it. That this is the way of the cross, but it is also the way to life. Now, having said all of this, please don't stop listening. If you stop, start listening again. The intent of Jesus' teaching isn't to shackle those who fail in marriage with a debilitating guilt. That's not what Jesus intends. The question isn't whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. There is no instance in Scripture of an individual coming to God for forgiveness and God saying no. That never happens. Think of the Samaritan woman who is on her fourth or fifth relationship. And Jesus is telling, yeah, you're right. This guy's not your husband. You've had four of them, and this is just another guy. And yet he's there to show her mercy. So if you feel a weight right now, hear God's love and mercy toward you. This is not condemnation. This is God's love. And if anything, this is about finding true freedom in Christ. But what does true freedom in Christ look like? To find that true freedom, you have to make a full confession. Jesus says the reason for divorce is because of the hardness of our heart. So you must over time feel the weight of your sin, not to do penance, to pay for it, but so you might fully confess it. Fully receive God's mercy and fully discover the freedom that God would give you. A lot of us are conditioned to avoid emotional pain and guilt. So when we experience guilt brought on by another person or the feeling of guilt from our actions, we either try to internalize it somewhere where we can't feel it anymore or we get angry and we lash out. And we assume that it's someone else's problem, not ours. But what we need to do with the conviction over our sin is we need to enter into it. We need to lean all the way in. Feel the pain as if we're dealing with a nasty wound and trying to remove the infection. We need to confess it to God and trust that he desires to have mercy on it. So if you're wrestling with guilt about sin in a marriage, if you haven't repented of a failure, or if you still carry a weight in some way, one way I can walk with you as your pastor is through a rite of repentance. This is one thing our church has available. It is not as if you need my forgiveness. That's not the issue. But one of the gifts God gives to a church is pastors whose job is to deal with sin to assure you of God's forgiveness. So if you want to deal with your sin in a serious way, if you want to enter into it, let's talk about this. Let's walk through this. It's not to make you feel more guilty, but it's so that you will really find the freedom of Christ. Now, I haven't said anything this morning about legitimate reasons for divorce. And the reason why is because Jesus doesn't give any here. I think it's because Mark or Jesus himself is addressing a context in which people are looking for justifications. They're looking for the escape clauses. And Jesus wants his audience to feel the full weight. There's not an easy way out here. It's just hard. In other places, Jesus does mention adultery as a legitimate reason for divorce. It's not saying you have to get a divorce, but it is a reason for, some in some cases, a legitimate reason. Now, Paul adds another reason that if an unbelieving spouse wishes to leave, the Christian should free them to leave, allow them to leave. And I would add that within this tradition of Jesus on marriage, abuse. Is another legitimate reason for a spouse to leave but we must hear Jesus's words that not every reason for divorce is a legitimate reason and in remarriage it is possible to commit adultery when Jesus says this in verses 11 and 12 that a husband or a wife can divorce marry another and commit adultery He's saying that the marriage union is so strong that even with divorce, that stamp of approval from the court, the marriage union that God has put together might not be broken. And by marrying another, a person can commit adultery. If we desire to treat marriage with the seriousness that God does, we need to be very careful in considering remarriage. We do need to walk into it with a sense of fear and trembling, not that it's not legitimate. That's not what I'm saying, but we need to do it with wisdom and in prayer with a community of faith who can love us and walk with us through it. Now, lastly, if a marriage, if marriage is a symbol of what God intends to do with the world, if marriage is this sign that points to Christ's union with his bride, the church, then what about singleness? Is to be single to be incomplete? No. Because marriage between a husband and wife is still only a sign. A sacrament of something greater. Marriage between Christ and his people, between heaven and earth, this is the end to which marriage points. So singleness, expresses and reminds that marriage is not ultimate, that Christ is sufficient for us. Singles, your faithfulness to Christ is a reminder that we are all called to Christ as our Lord and King, that even those of us who are married, our marriage should not be the central focus of our lives. That should be Christ. Also, You remind us that the church is our truest family, not our our natural family. That water is thicker than blood in this case. So singles, please don't grow weary and don't let loneliness lead you away from Christ. Will you please help us as the church by telling us that you need us to be family to you? Will you remind us that you need the intimate relationships that a family can provide that you don't have through a spouse. And to marrieds, it could be that one day we or our spouse will be unable to fulfill sexual intimacy in the way that we desire. And when that day comes, we have to look to faithful singles. A sexless life isn't only possible, but it can be a beautiful way to carry your cross and to follow Jesus on the way of self-denial. Marriage cannot be central and it, can't not, and it cannot be an idol for us. No. One way to think about all of this is the way of the cross, the way of self-denial. But the other way to think about all of this is that Jesus is promising us life and inviting us into his kingdom. And to receive it, we must become like children. I think it's so interesting that Jesus says these hard things about marriage. And then immediately after, he is welcoming children into his arms, holding them and blessing them. This is what we must become. With the most intimate matters of our lives, our marriage, our sex life, our family life, we must come with the openness and the vulnerability of children. And in spite of our brokenness and our failure jesus will wrap us up in his arms and he will melt the hardness of our hearts and he'll bless us so that we can continue on the way of the cross in faithfulness so here's the question that all of this boils down to have you come to jesus like a child have you come to him have you allowed jesus to wrap you in his arms, to melt your own heart that could be very hard, will you become like a child? And of all these matters that may be difficult to you, will you come to him and allow him to love you and lead you on the way? It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.